today on Against the Grain, you may have heard about what the punitive nature of our so-called criminal justice system means for people behind bars. But what if that system harms not just those imprisoned, but all of us? I'm CS. Joseph Ramsey talks about the prominent public interest lawyer Brian Stevenson's transformative ideas and his own coming right up. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. People who commit heinous acts often end up in prison. Many are given sentences like life without possibility of parole or even the death penalty. Do they deserve this? Should we lock them up and throw away the key? And perhaps most provocatively, are they so different from the rest of us? Brian Stevenson, the acclaimed public interest lawyer and human rights advocate, has devoted his career to being with, listening to, and representing in court people who have been charged with violent crimes. Why? What does he see that we don't see? Does Stevenson think that even the hardest of hardened criminals deserve another chance? Joseph Ramsey, an activist, organizer, and UMass Boston-based scholar, has found Brian Stevenson's work tremendously insightful and moving. In an essay he wrote for the journal Socialism and Democracy, Ramsey draws on many of Stevenson's insights and develops a number of his own. Ramsey's article focuses on what he calls the compassionate radicalism that Stevenson evinces and advocates for in his best-selling memoir, Just Mercy. When Joe Ramsey and I connected recently, I asked him for some background on Brian Stevenson. Brian Stevenson is the executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative, which is a human rights organization in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, He's best known to most people, perhaps, for his best-selling book, Just Mercy, which is a memoir as well as a social critique. It was also made into a popular Hollywood film. including Jamie Foxx in a very powerful and award-winning role. He's essentially been a defender of people who are in prison, often for unjust causes or who have uh, faced really unfair sentencing. Um, He has defended people, particularly people who have been condemned to life sentences, people who have been condemned to death by execution. And he has helped to really build a movement for death penalty abolition and and for the abolition not only of the death penalty but what he and others would call the other death penalty life in prison without the possibility of parole uh, so he um, he's an inspiring figure who started out just individually defending people in, mainly predominantly in the former confederate states of the deep south and but has grown into not only uh, a successful legal defender of the you know poor and oppressed people who are often caught up in the incarceration system down south, but the builder of a kind of regional and a national movement and a, and a public spokesman on issues of economic and racial justice, as well as uh, the need for quite radical criminal justice reform. I don't know if he calls himself a prison abolitionist or not, but he's definitely someone who's helped to open up space for quite substantial and deep critiques of the race class bias that runs through the criminal justice system, so-called criminal justice system in this in the society of the United States. The full title of Stevenson's memoir is Just Mercy, a story of justice and redemption. It was published in 2014. The book centers on Stevenson's efforts to save the life of a death row inmate named Walter McMillian. What should we know about this person, Walter McMillian? You know, my understanding of this case comes pretty much exclusively through reading Stevenson's book and and watching the film which of course takes some being a hollywood film takes some liberties on on some issues i would i would imagine or condenses some some more complex matters but essentially um walter mcmillian was a man who spent decades in prison on death row for a crime he didn't commit and not only that he did not commit that there was clear evidence that he did not commit mcmillian had a profound and corroborated alibi that put him in a different place 
around dozens of other members of his community at a, at a barbecue that he and his wife were were hosting during the period of a uh, of a brutal murder that happened across town in a different part, uh, miles and miles away. I think you know a significant drive away. Anyway, had many many forms of evidence that he was innocent of this crime, and yet due to the various biases, race and class biases, and bureaucratic. Uh, apathy and 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 aggressive judges and aggressive prosecutors ended up being convicted of this crime and, and in fact took took extraordinary efforts on the part of Stevenson and others and really the kind of good luck of a or the redemption I guess you could say of a convicted felon who had been the state's sole witness against Walter McMillian and uh, so you know that person recanted their testimony which opened up a path to throwing out. Walter's conviction, but he's but he nonetheless paid a price, an extraordinary price, not only in the years in prison, but in the psychological and physical toll that 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 death sentence effectively had upon him. Um, and he, uh, my understanding is that he, you know, he died only a short period after his release. So in some sense, even though he was uh, exonerated of the crime for which he was committed uh, to prison, he he did pay the price of much of his life. Um, in a way that's just a clear indictment and a clear proof that we have uh, we're very far from any kind of foolproof criminal justice system when it comes to the administration of the death penalty in this country. Yeah, the murder uh, that Walter McMillian did not commit was of Rhonda Morrison on November 1st, 1986. What point does Stevenson make about the authorities, government authorities desire to reassure a community after a murder takes place? Stevenson makes it clear that although the police and the prosecutors and the judges play an important role in kind of allowing this injustice to go forward, it isn't something that strictly starts with them. Uh, that is to say, uh, there clearly were, as Stevenson represents it, there were uh, you know people in the community that were very upset about this uh, this murder and who wanted someone to be caught for the crime and who wanted some kind of closure on this issue. And it seems to be that that kind of quote unquote community pressure played a big role in the kind of rush to justice, which of course becomes a rush to injustice as we learn. Uh, but I think it is an important part of Stevenson's argument that the problem here is not simply, you know, bad or racist police or judges or, you know, intolerant or, you know, people, you know, bureaucrats in the system that are unwilling to reconsider decisions and new evidence. But this broader uh, kind of community pressure to kind of rush to judgment. And of course, that carries with it often in this case, a, a kind of racist overtone, but also some particular issues that had to do with Walter McMillian's kind of reputation in the community. Apparently, there have been some kind of scandal around his personal life, totally unrelated to these to this accusation of murder, but had to do with interracial uh, romance that he had been involved with, that it, you know, some kind of stigma that attached to that, which made him a convenient scapegoat. So Walter McMillian uh, did not commit the crime for which he was convicted and sentenced to death. Stevenson also writes in his book, Just Mercy, about people who did in fact commit heinous acts. How do these people come off in his book? How does Stevenson portray them? Stevenson makes a strong argument that it is also wrong to treat even the convicted, those convicted of crimes they did commit in some form or another, it is wrong to condemn them in the way that this society often does. One of these people is uh, goes by the name of Herb Richardson, and Herb Richardson is um, described in the book as a figure who has had many, many troubles throughout his life, mental health struggles, uh, trauma that has followed him, post-traumatic stress disorder following his service in the war in Vietnam, going back to the 1960s and early 70s. Uh, someone who's experienced uh, abuse in, in the home, I believe in foster homes, if I'm remembering correctly, throughout his life, and developed serious mental problems that led him, or at least contributed to some actions he took uh, that had to do with trying to scare off uh, a woman from dating someone that he didn't want her to. And, and, and from his perspective, accidentally ended up killing a young girl who was not the intended target of his uh, action. I believe he, he, he left some kind of explosive device under a porch trying to send a warning signal, which, of course, is not behavior that any of us would want to condone. Uh, nonetheless, it was a kind of aberrant action 
of a person who was in mental distress and who clearly needed help and was not getting it. And, and yet he did something for which he professes great, great regret and sorrow. And he killed a young girl, not intentionally. And Stevenson makes the argument that the way the system treats the Herb Richardsons of the world is, you know, just as in a very different way, but just as a morally horrific and utterly socially dysfunctional and irrational in the long run, uh, as well as cruel as what is happening to the Walter McMillions, who are, you know, literally being locked away for crimes they didn't commit. So so I think there's a number of examples of people that, that Stevenson humanizes and, and even personally defends to try to lighten their sentences and get them out of prison and give them a chance to redeem themselves outside of the prison walls. And I think that's really where the heart or what makes this book so, so powerful to me. Joseph Ramsey is his name. He's an activist, organizer, and he teaches English and American studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. I'm CS, and this is Against the Grain. Uh, Joe wrote an essay titled Never Throw Away the Key on the Compassionate Radicalism of Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy, which appeared in the journal Socialism and Democracy. And again, Just Mercy is the title of Stevenson's memoir as well as a film that came out five years after his memoir was published. What does Stevenson relate in the way of a comment that Herb Richardson made to him moments before going to the electric chair? Oh gosh, yeah, that's an intense moment. It's an intense moment in the book, and in some ways it's even more intense in the film, which you know does have its virtues in, in taking some liberties in the way that Hollywood can. Um, so... I mean, Herb Richardson tells Brian Stevenson that essentially no one had ever been as nice to him in his life. No one had ever listened to him and been as caring to him as people were in the prison the day of his execution. Right? That that these even the guards, you know, that are that are charged with escorting him to the death room that are basically charged with killing him, still have such a sense in, in Stevenson's telling that something wrong is here and that this is a human being and that they should be kind to this human being, even if he, especially because he only has a day of life, that they, they try to get him the meal that he wants. They try to play the music that he wants. They try to assure him that the flag, the folded American flag that he's entitled to or that his, that his relatives are entitled to after he becomes deceased as a veteran of the United States military, ensuring him that they will get that flag. Uh, you know, Richardson makes this comment kind of offhand to Stevenson, but Stevenson sits with it in his memoir and reflects on it. And essentially, uh, I don't have the quote in front of me here, but essentially says, you know, wow, like where are all these people that cared so much about this vulnerable human being, Herb Richardson, when he needed them, when he was, go when he was being a subject to various kinds of abuse in his childhood, when he was... Um, facing unemployment and economic poverty in in the town where he grew up, when he came back with post-traumatic stress disorder after serving the U.S. imperial, you know, unjust military cause in Vietnam. You know, where were people, where was, in effect, the system to take care of this person before it got to the point that they, in their derangement and isolation and, and kind of uh, mental health crisis killed someone and this, therefore sent themselves to the death chamber by implication? Right. So, I mean, it's, it's a powerful moment that not only humanizes Herb Richardson, but effectively, you know, it starts to humanize even the guards around him. Those who are who are charged with reproducing this vicious, murderous, in, in my view, system still kind of know it's wrong on some level. Or maybe, maybe they wouldn't say that out loud, but they they know they're about to kill a human being. And there's a kind of uneasiness about that, which I think Stevenson wants us to see as the sign that things could be different. Right. That that, in fact, there are many people even inside the system that might be brought up to the position of seeing how wrong this is. Uh, the closer you are to an actual execution, I think Stevenson reminds us, the harder it is to just kind of fall back on the tidy, self-righteous abstractions of how, you know, uh, this is this is just justice being done or an eye for an eye or whatever. In focusing on the most vulnerable and broken people in our society, which is what Stevenson's book does, on vulnerable and broken people in prison, what effort does Stevenson make to generalize that condition to maybe the broader public to say that 
you know, here we have vulnerable and broken people, but but maybe um, that kind of uh, those kinds of qualities exist in the public at large. So one of the lines from Stevenson's book, which I actually kicked off my own article with uh, as an epigraph, goes like this. You know, Stevenson says, our brokenness is also the source of our common humanity, the basis for our shared search for comfort, meaning, and healing. Our shared vulnerability and imperfection nurtures and sustains our capacity for compassion. And so I think at the core of what I call Brian Stevenson's kind of radical compassion or compassionate radicalism is a recognition that A, all human beings are vulnerable. All human beings in this society and in, in the world we have today are forced to develop in conditions not fully of their own choosing. That we are all, to some degree, both people who have been harmed by others in some way, whether we're conscious of it or not, or and that have caused harm to others. And that rather than being a reason to condemn even more people to prison sentences or deportation or whatever other kind of punishments we can, you know, social exclusion, we should in fact take this universal, although unevenly and unequally experienced sense of brokenness, uh, mental and physical, and we should take, we should seize upon that as in fact, perhaps the key to our salvation, not to sound too religious about it, though I do think a kind of radical Christianity probably informs, actually quite clearly informs Stevenson's project, though he doesn't, he doesn't rub it in our face in any way. It's very much something he shows through his practice, not through preaching. Uh, but this idea that, that his, I think there's the kind of theory or a hope in Stevenson's work that if we could all get a little more honest about admitting the harms that have happened to us and, and the inevitable ways in which we have harmed others, that we could in fact seize upon this as a way to identify with and extend mercy and compassion to other people, right? We can kind of let down our guard. I mean, I think one of his, his kind of arguments is that many of the people who are harshest and who are most desiring vengeance uh, and, and the harshest kind of punishment for alleged criminals, whether they did the crime or not, that these people often are themselves using the criminal justice system and these fantasies of revenge to kind of compensate or cover up for some kind of wounds that they've had in their own life. And that contrary to the idea that an eye for an eye is going to, you know, uh, make people feel better and that general that in many cases people who even people in the families of murder victims that after the execution goes through they they end up feeling terrible about it that they they feel like they've been complicit in another murder rather than feeling like that they've washed the pain of an old one away so i think one of his arguments is really for kind of getting in touch with the deep kind of vulnerability as like a kind of inherent part of the human condition and specifically the human condition as it's lived in a society a such a violent uh, kind of society such as the United States uh, that is so, you know, unequal in so many ways and, and is so psychologically as well as physically kind of abusive of people, albeit, again, in very uneven ways. He's not saying that everyone experiences the same kind of hardships at all, but that a certain level of that, you know, just in being mortal creatures in a, in a kind of racist capitalist society, everyone in a patriarchal society, I think is very important to, to mention here too, sexist society, uh, there's no getting out of this situation without getting some mess on you. And I think one of his arguments is that if we can all like recognize that mess that we're in, not due to any fault of our own, or at least not due solely to the our own faults, that we would be in a healthier place for actually addressing, uh, not only recognizing the humanities of others, but actually, uh, you know, getting into honest conversations about how we can transform the conditions in people's lives, socioeconomic, healthcare, and so and so forth that actually lead people uh, to such miserable ends as, let's say, Herb, Herb Richardson's, right? So, so he really is trying to get us at, you know, rec in recognizing the vulnerability and the, and the redemptive capacity of someone, even a convicted, admitted murderer like Herb Richardson, uh, that we could maybe look at ourselves and think, you know, uh, are we too kind of victims of circumstances uh, that we maybe don't often want to talk about? But if we, maybe if we were willing to kind of recognize are that in ourselves, we could we could make more progress on uh, on addressing the fundamental root causes of some of this stuff, and, and and instead of just reproducing the harm in our very kind of hardness towards others, which uh, doesn't doesn't heal us, and it just guarantees will inflict wounds on someone else. 
Joseph G. Ramsey is his name. He is a activist and organizer. He's a podcaster. He hosts and co-produces the podcast Shelter and Solidarity. And he's senior lecturer in English and American Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Um, a few minutes ago, you, you said the phrase, and it comes up in your article, and it may well come up in Stevenson's book, again, Just Mercy, the memoir of Brian Stevenson. Each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. So given that understanding, um, what is Stevenson and what do you think of, of the labeling of people as, you know, criminal or drug dealer or felon or, or murderer? Yeah, I think this is one of the most profound points that Stevenson makes in his book. This idea that, um, the idea that it is okay to reduce another human being to any one aspect of their personality or their history, let alone the worst aspect of their history, uh, that this is a profoundly dehumanizing cultural practice. Uh, and it is, unfortunately, I would say, I think Stevenson would probably agree, but not one that is you know, confined to the criminal justice system, but which we can see kind of creeping into culture and politics of this country and perhaps other countries around the world in what some people call kind of a punitive turn in American culture, which is, of course, related to trends in actual, you know, incarceration, but not reducible to it. And I think, I mean, every human being is an incredible mix of, of capacities and, and experiences. And uh, Stevenson is not at all suggesting that people should ignore the wrong or the bad aspects or whatever of a of a person but to label someone as if they are reducible to that is deeply deeply problematic not only because of course it leads to the potential for throwing away the key on people who even may have committed only very what are in context quite minor offenses, right? I mean, we have the example of things like the three strikes and your outlaws, and which has produced in some states just absolutely monstrous consequences, which this may not be a typical example, but of, like, there are examples of people who are, you know, still quite young, maybe even still in their teens, being sent away for life in prison for a third offense, which is involves stealing a slice of pizza from like a party outside, you know? In other words, the label criminal, the label repeat offender, the label felon can hide much more than it illuminates. It can, it hits our emotions. Like you hear someone's a felon. Oh, how about a repeat felon? You, you know, it's very easy to think, oh, this is a person who's a bad person. This is their badness is what's essential about them, right? It really pushes us away from asking the question or makes it very uncomfortable to even raise the question, well, what were the circumstances around this uh, accusation or this conviction? Uh, were there mitigating circumstances that made this, you know, uh, an act that was not uh, of this person's not in their, you know, right state of mind, right? Were they doing it in their teenage years uh, because of great peer pressure? Were they doing it because someone else was threatening them if they didn't? Were they doing it because of their mental health status or a, an addiction they were struggling from at the time? And But the, the pressure of these kind of buzzwords, these, over, these really heated labels, you know, it suggests that they were like, they were just a bad seed from the beginning, as if they had some, I guess, some, some bad genes or something. And, and I think that's really important. If this is not just about like being kinder to the offender or the accused offender or whatever. It's also about like being honest with ourselves as a society. Like if we, because if we don't admit into the discussion, the mitigating circumstances, the history, both the broader social history, the family history, the psychological history, the personal history. If we don't get serious about like analyzing what are the factors, the social factors, you know, big and small that contribute to dysfunctional behavior or or that prevent it, then how can we actually enact policies? And I mean policy, everything from like how we run households to how we run state, local, federal governments, schools, you know, the police system itself, policing system. How can we make progress there if we don't even admit what I would call like a materialist 
historical and materialist framework for understanding human behavior so that so that we increase the amount of common good and reduce if not to zero then then as as as, as low as we can the the kind of circumstances that are most likely to lead to what are in isolation seen as monstrous acts but but seen sociologically and historically may in, and psychologically are actually very predictable outcomes of certain kinds of dehumanizing circumstances so it's not only you know the labeling's not only a problem because it like leads us to be overly punitive towards others but it's actually i argue and this is where i mean i think stevenson picks this up but i try to take it a little further in my piece to say like this also is is a way this is kind of labeling and moralism and black and white thinking is a way is a sure way to keep us from improving our society and a sure way for us to delude ourselves into a kind of arrogance that we are above you know you know we are just morally superior beings and and it has nothing to do with the circumstances and the privileges that we maybe have lived with uh and so i think it's it's really a very dangerous a dangerous uh thing and not not just dangerous for the people locked in prison but for the people who are locking them in prison as well there's also the story of a, a macho correctional officer in this book the story of a correctional officer with a confederate flag tattoo i think he has like racist bumper stickers on his car he listens to court testimony about a death row prisoner on his watch. What happens? Yeah, so this tough prison guard you're, you're referring to is never named in the text, perhaps for good reason. Um, but Stevenson describes him early in the text as, as a real kind of brutal figure, not only based on his tattoos and his uh, Confederate racist uh, iconography on his car. I think there's a gun rack described there. So you can just imagine, you know, it seems to fit a certain kind of stereotype, right? But not only that, uh, he, he also strip searches Stevenson at one point. You know, Stevenson, as Walter McMillian's lawyer, is supposed to be, I think, protected from that kind of violation, right? I mean, I, I think he's probably allowed to be patted down, but not strip searched. So, I mean, th this is an individual who seems to be like malicious and even taking a certain kind of sadistic pride and pleasure in his job, you know, going beyond, you know, what the job requires when it comes to his treatment of Stevenson. And yet Stevenson shows uh, later in his, in his narrative that this guard, his cruelty, uh, you know, towards Stevenson and towards the various inmates that he's kind of presiding over is, is shown to be the product partly of ignorance. That is to say, the division of labor and the way the system works keeps many of these guards from having a chance to hear the backstory that has led to their their inmates transgressions assuming that they've they've committed them at all not in Walter's case of course but in some of the other cases like the Herb Richardson case and and so what we see is this guard ultimately because by first force of kind of uh, accident happens to be on a different duty uh, and is able during some of Stevenson's court hearings as he's getting new evidence introduced to uh, one of these cases he's able to hear you know the 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 testimony of of the of the convicted prisoner uh, as to the, the the terrible abuse that he went through in in multiple homes that he's put in foster homes and things of that nature and this guard ultimately like admits to Stevenson and and the prisoner uh, that wow like I I always thought I had it bad like this guard had previously gone through uh, foster homes and been abused himself he's like well I thought I had it bad but you had it worse than me man can't believe what you went through. So you see like a moment of breakthrough of sympathy, right? Now the guard doesn't become a revolutionary and say, okay, I'm going to bust you out of prison, but he does have a kind of crack in his uh, armor and his kind of his, his psychological physical shield that kind of keeps him separate from the inmate, right? You know, or, you know, that is to say he starts to see some of himself in the other. And in, and in seeing that, he starts to to kind of melt a little bit in how he relate and soften in the way that he relates to this person, including, I mean, I think that the example that stands out in the book is that he actually, like, breaks the rules and, like, takes the dude to, like, go get, like, an ice cream um, on the when we're going back and forth from the court to the prison. And, you know, you're not supposed to make any extra stops, but he says, what the hell? He stops and he, like, actually just has an ice cream with the guy. And then, of course, Stevenson informs us later that this prison guard, a few weeks later, actually quits the job. Uh, now Stevenson doesn't know his story. I mean, what did he? What did this guy go to do? But the implication is that even these kind of little cracks can matter, right? No, is this going to abolish or overthrow the whole system? I don't think so. But it's a sign that even the individual that seems most far gone, right? Again, tattoos, racist behavior, brute, almost sadistic behavior, that this person a 
may be themselves the victim of trauma. That's partly why they're acting like such an ass. And B is capable of seeing the humanity of the other that they've been prone to condemn if they're given a chance, right? If they're really forced to listen to the full story, the mitigating circumstances. And that's what Brian Stevenson does. He listens. How would you characterize and evaluate the type, the kind of listening Stevenson engages in and its impact? Stevenson talks about the importance of proximity, right? Being close to the actual human experience of what people are dealing with. And there's no substitute for that. You know, no good theory, no good Harvard education prepared him for what he himself, Stevenson, learned by being close and by listening. And yes, yeah, so I think that's that's one of the, I think, the ethics of his book is the importance of listening. And then the second one would be that, yes, that that ethic of listening, that transformative potential is not something that stops with, you know, the people we politically agree with, that that is a principle that needs to be extended uh, to others, even people that seem to be so hardened against us. Now, he's not suggesting that's going to be an easy process, but I, I do believe that it's, it's essential that we be open to that and that we organize and educate and, and conduct discourse in a way that is welcoming, if you will, traitors to the system, right? Welcoming people rehumanizing rather than uh, an approach, a rhetorical approach or a political approach that's kind of looking for excuses or reasons Maybe they're valid reasons, or maybe they're not made up, at least they're factual reasons to dismiss people. Oh, you voted for Trump, therefore the heck with you, right? Uh, or, oh, you don't agree with abolishing the police or something, or, or oh, you, you, you held a, a Blue Lives Matter sign, oh, the heck with you. I mean, obviously, politics on a grand scale, you, you always have to ultimately think about, like, you're not going to get everyone with you. I mean, if you can get 51% in this country to agree on anything, you know, that might be enough to push something forward. But I think as an overall ethical and political framework, we need to be looking for and, and acting in ways that encourage, you might say, people to break away from, or, or maybe a better metaphor is to soften and to melt and to reconsider some of the kind of hard and fast positions that their identity may be wrapped up in. And I think that, that Stevenson models that without suggesting that that's a substitute for system change. But it's in some ways, I see it as a sign of hope that system change is actually possible and that the coalition of people we can bring together for truly radical system change on, on the, whether it comes to the carceral state or other issues, may be a broader and different looking coalition than we, than we often maybe fool ourselves into thinking when we only judge people by their kind of hard exterior uh, presentation. I, we need to be open and, and actively trying to build a broader movement that might even include, you know, former prison guards, right? I mean, I have a student, I mean, one a anecdote here, I'll just say I have a student, a former student, I'm not going to name them, but He's one of my best students I ever had in an English class at UMass Boston, and he's now a prison guard. You know, and I actually talked with him while I was writing this article, and I asked him, you know, he read the article with great interest. He said, yeah, man, like when I was being trained, they all they tell us like about the prisoners is like how much of a threat they are. So everything that every way in which they're taught how to deal with people is like seeing them as potentially violent. And, and so there's very little, as he was describing it, very little attention to like the mitigating circumstances, the sociological history um, that the people are dealing with. Uh, and then so he, you know, he even as somebody who's trying to be a different kind of person inside the system, was very aware that like, you know, his mind has been shaped by a particular kind of discourse that really discourages the kind of thing that, that Stevenson's bringing out. And I think, again, I'm not like saying we should hold our breath for like prison guards who still have a stake in like the existing system to be like the leading force for change. But wouldn't it be great if we could get 10% of them, right? You know, if, if we could, you know, 10%, similarly with other institutions that we often think about wanting to disrupt or resist on the left, you know, policing institutions, the military, whatever. Wouldn't it be great if we actually had an organized contingent of people that were willing to speak out from within? And of course this happens here and there, but I think not nearly as often as it does. And I think Stevenson, he doesn't take it this way, but I think, the lessons of his book like could be put to political use beyond you know the the specific cases that he discusses joseph ramsey uh, teaches english and american studies at the university of massachusetts boston he's an activist an organizer and a pretty prolific author and we're looking at a piece that he wrote for the journal socialism and democracy about what he calls the compassionate radicalism of brian stevenson's just mercy which again is stevenson's 
memoir, the full title of which is Just Mercy, A Story of Justice and Redemption, published in 2014. I'm CS, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So at one point in this piece, you talk about how Brian Stevenson's opposition to the death penalty, the reasons he's opposed to the death penalty, don't align with the usual arguments made in opposition to that horrific sanction, the death penalty. And you draw from this, you derive from this two axioms, two fundamental human rights. Lay that out for us. As you mentioned, Stevenson does not emphasize the more familiar reasons to be against the death penalty. And I think there are plenty of them. And and Stevenson agrees with probably quite a few of them, you know, arguments about it's you know, the inevitability of an innocent person being put to death. You know, obviously, of course, the pronounced racism of the of the uh, death penalty's application, you know, the likelihood of someone being sent to death row for killing a white person versus a black person, you know, drastically different. I mean, there are these, fun, these are more familiar arguments for being against the death penalty. There's also, of course, a kind of economic argument against it, that it's, that it's inefficient because it costs so much in all the legal appeals um, and so forth, which I, that's an argument I don't think Stevenson would really want to unite with as much. But there are these familiar arguments. Stevenson's, I think, more radical opposition to the death penalty also leads him to be an opponent of life in prison without the possibility of parole. And that is to say, both the death penalty and life without parole are ways of kind of flushing other people down the toilet. They are other. They are ways of forgetting that every human being is capable of redemption. Uh, and, and the two principles I derive from his discussion is, is one, the principle that we are all vulnerable in some sense, broken creatures. Um, and secondly, that we are all unfinished projects, that is to say, works in progress capable of change and possible transformation. And, and from that kind of, I guess you could say, philosophy uh, of human, the human nature or the human condition, I sharpen the point further by saying that we should be able to derive from them two fundamental human rights. One is a right to mitigation, and secondly is a right to transformation. And the right to mitigation means essentially the right to have life circumstances and past history factored into all judgments about oneself in the present, which is to say, pushing back on that labeling discourse we were talking about earlier. That it seems like you can flush away someone just because of one thing that's been that they've been you know tagged with. And the second, the right to transformation, that is to say that people uh, must be and have a right to be provided a space and a time and a context and the resources to improve, to grow, and to change. And I, and I say this is a, essentially like having a right to have both one's past and one's potential count, the right to have a history that is respected and attended to, and the right to a future. And it's from this perspective, you can see that it's the issue, the more fundamental philosophical kind of wrongness of the death penalty is not limited to the death penalty, but to any kind of throwing away the key on someone, uh, giving up and shutting the door forever on someone, whether that has to do with locking them in prison or perhaps other forms of forever punishments we might imagine, the, the cultural equivalents, but specifically talking about the, the criminal justice system here. Um, yeah, a right to mitigation, a right to transformation. Uh, that's what I derive from from Stevenson. And in light of that, what would you or what do you make of calls on the left for Kyle Rittenhouse to be given a death sentence or life without parole for his actions on the streets of Kenosha, Minnesota, shooting and killing two people and injuring another during a Black Lives Matter protest, or for maximum sentences to be given to uh, killer cops or racist vigilantes. I mean, wh what do you think, how would you evaluate a calls, yeah, from, from many, many people on the left that they be a punished to the fullest extent possible? Yeah, a great, a great question and a, uh, and a challenging one. You know, we can talk all this philosophy and sociology, but you get to concrete examples, it can get quite challenging. So, so I do wanna try to choose my words carefully here. I mean, my first comment would be that it is understandable and perhaps even unavoidable that in the climate that we're in, culturally, politically, 
in this country and have been for some time that many, though not all, on the on the left or who consider themselves on the left would default to some of these positions. That is to say, if the measure of justice, which is to say the measure of a human life's value is to be measured in how many years or how much poison you inject into the person who killed the, that other person, right? If the measure of a, of a life, white or black, is how long you punish someone for who harms that person, white or black, then it's understandable that the demands for equality would express themselves as demands for equivalency in punishment. But I do think um, there is thankfully another kind of sector of the left that you know sometimes calls itself abolitionist or you know anti-carceral that argues that really the challenge is, is not just to render equivalent the kinds of punishments that are given to you know their guy their side versus our side or whatever the people that they identify with you know the conservatives or the the cops or whatever versus our you know our people but to question this logic itself and to somehow find a way to break out of this carceral logic and this idea that the main function of a, of a criminal justice system or a public safety system, that the principal function should be about retribution, which is kind of like a fancy word for like vengeance, right? Or, or punishment. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I don't think, I mean, you could get into a, a, like a more nuanced conversation about the role of punishment. I, I don't know that, that Stevenson's argument or mine certainly would say that there isn't a role for punishment. There might be some ways in which depriving someone of their liberty for some period of time or, or you know, some people may be need to forced to think, right? That is, they may not, if they're not inclined to think about their racist views, their violent habits, there may be some way in which there is a need for a kind of force, a social force, whether that has to be a physical force or a cultural force to, to kind of initiate that process. But it seems to me that when the only aspect of a kind of you know, justice is the punishment aspect. We're, 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 we've lost track of rehabilitation. We've lost track of the possibility of redemption. We've lost track of the possibility of this person learning and other people learning from them, right? I mean, you know, the, the possibility that this person has other talents that could benefit society. Again, if we understand that people are not reducible to just their, to any one aspect, especially their worst aspect, then when we flush people away with the worst punishments ever, we're also flushing away their capacities to change. We're flushing away their other talents that they may have. We're flushing away our potential to, you know, learn from them and their potential to, to show that they can change. So I think, I think it's a slippery slope. I mean, I think I can understand why people who feel besieged by injustice, like have a desire to strike back at what they perceive to be the enemy. And, and so, and, 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 and we'll, we'll take whatever victories we can get. Right. I mean, even if all we can get is just a stiffer sentence for Kyle Rittenhouse or something, or, or some, you know, killer cop, then we can at least feel like, okay, we won this one. But, but if what we're doing is engaging in just like uh, if we are involved in a discourse that just continues to escalate the punitiveness of our society, I think we're actually helping to normalize the extreme punishments that are already going on in the United States rather than questioning them. I mean, people, one example of this would be to say, you know, there's a lot of evidence that black men or black, black people are subjected to longer sentences or harsher sentences than white. So let's make the white sentences more harsh too. Uh, well, Interesting, but that, that now that just means that the white people are going to be as oppressed as the black people were, right? Uh, not in relative terms, but in absolute terms. And also in relative terms compared to Europe or Japan or many other countries that don't punish even the harshest crimes in the way that the United States punishes minor crimes. Uh, so I do think there's a real danger of, nor of that the left normalizes and ceases to be a dissenting voice with respect to this increasing punitiveness of our society. We've only got a few more minutes with uh, Joe Ramsey. What about Brian Stevenson's work reminds you of Richard Wright? You are a Wright scholar. You've spent years looking at, analyzing, um, giving close reads of Richard Wright's work, both fictional and nonfiction. Uh, yeah, what, what resonates with you in terms of uh, where Richard Wright might stand in relation to Brian Stevenson and some of his ideas? Both Brian Stevenson and Richard Wright bring to our attention 
the humanity and the complexity of circumstances, psychology, history, human possibility that lurks and persists in areas where many would have us believe that humanity has been extinguished. They both dwell in different ways with the condemned. You know, Richard Wright is perhaps most famous for his depiction of the character of Bigger Thomas in his best-selling novel, Native Son from 1940, which I hope some of your listeners are familiar with. But Bigger is someone who has been living a quote-unquote criminal life for a long time and in the, in the midst of the novel is compelled to commit very violent acts. I'll try to avoid spoiling the plot for those who haven't read it. Uh, but essentially, I mean, Wright himself, after publishing the book, wrote to a close comrade at one point to say he was really shocked that so many readers, quote, and quoting right now, um, so few readers, rather, seemed to see that he meant to emphasize Bigger's humanity and that the entire novel was written to sear that one idea into the reader's mind. That is to say, the idea that Bigger, despite his monstrous acts of violence, is deeply human. And Wright asked the, this question, this is his language, are we going to let what capitalism has done to Bigger make us reject him? Will the drapery of his hate, Bigger's hate and fear, make us afraid to recognize the human impulses, warped to be sure, which surge and dominate him, end quote. So Wright was clear in the realm of art, trying to compel both broader readers and, you know, committed left activists, right, was involved in the Communist Party at this point. But he was struggling with that party, too, to say, hey, we can't just be defending, you know, the angels of the working class. We need to also be recognizing the deep humanity of those people who have been oppressed by their oppression. We need to uh, study and learn from the reality and the complex reality of the bigger Thomases of the world, not only so that we can try to win them over, you know, to the, the cause of social change, but so that we develop our own understanding, again, of the social and psychological factors that produce hatred, that produce fear, that produce violent reactions to circumstances beyond people's control, right? And, 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 for, and Wright was very clear that he, he believed that if the left wouldn't do that, if it wanted to just live with these tidy categories that, you know, every every black poor person has to be an angel if they're in a novel or has to be a, like a hero and can't be themselves marked and marred by the oppression of their lives, then then the fascists would win the battle of, of hearts and minds because the fascists would speak or at least would make appeals to the complicated psychology of, of working class people in the United States and in other places. And so for, for Wright, getting past our kind of tidy labels of people, whether those are racialized labels or labels of criminality or immorality, getting beyond those labels was a crucial thing for the left to train itself to really think and meet people where they're at. And I think this you know, brings us back to that labeling question, which Stevenson is making us challenge in, in the sense that if you, lay, if, you, if you settle for a label of someone, even, you know, even let's say Kyle Rittenhouse, right? Or, oh, he's a white supremacist murderer. Or, or, or for that matter, Walter McMillian, you know, oh, he's a murderer and a, and a you know, and a, whatever, and a, and a womanizer and a, and a murderer and a black murderer. If you accept those labels, then it, you feel that you are relieved of the obligation to investigate, right? To actually watch the videos for yourself, read the, the history yourself, read the evidence yourself. Um, and and if, you, if you don't need to investigate, then you don't need to get close, right? You don't need to actually get inside the head of a bigger Thomas, right? Or get inside the head of a Herb Richardson, who actually did commit a violent act, as we recall, right? So, but, but the tragedy of this labeling then, as Stevenson and Wright bring it out in different ways, is that if you don't get close, whether through reading a novel that really goes into the investigation of a character's life experiences or, you know, lingering with the with the Herb Richardson in, in a jail cell before he's killed to learn his complexity and, and humanity. You know, if you don't get close, then you're not going to see the cracks in the wall that, you you know, right. You're, you're, you know, from afar, it just seems like everyone's in their little compartment, good and evil on different sides of the wall or good black and white or whatever, you know, law abiding and criminal. But when you look closer, Stevenson and Wright, I think both show us, you can see that there are cracks in that wall. There are ways in which Bigger Thomas could have gone a different direction than he ended up going, right? Even at, before and after his, you know, his famous murders, right? 
we can, if we get close, we can see both what went wrong to bring about a dysfunctional result, but we can also see the possibilities, the seeds of possible change, the potentialities, the cracks in the system as it is. So frankly, I mean, to go back to the Kyle Rittenhouse case, I know people who like don't even, like they didn't want to watch the videos or, or listen to the court cases and they feel like they already knew their position on it. But when I watched the, that video and, the, and, and so listened to the court case, like, I mean, obviously I don't, I didn't agree with a lot of what that guy did, but I could like, once he put himself in that position, man, I can understand his fear. So, so in, other, in other words, the point is not about saying, oh, it's okay what Kyle Rittenhouse did, but the point is, can we get to the place of like actually understanding how this bad result comes about? And I think the value of art, great art, is that it can give us space to linger in you know, in, in a fictionalized way, we don't have to take a position on Kyle Rittenhouse, but to linger with the bigger Thomas, right? Who is also, you know, a murderer, deliberate murderer, but does it out of fear and circumstances beyond his control in a racist class society where he doesn't have a fair chance and so forth and so on. Um, Richard Wright's art, I think, you know, in a way does something similar to Stevenson in a very different register. You know, Stevenson's not writing fiction. He's writing memoir and many other advocacy things, but they, they allow us to linger with the complexities of humanity and the fact that people are not, you know, we should never throw away the key uh, on people because people are capable of change and they didn't get, they didn't end up as they are just by, by virtue of the nature they were born into or they're, you know, uh, we need to know those complexities or else we're doomed to just repeat, you know, repeat our nightmares rather than breaking out of them. Joseph G. Ramsey, again, he teaches English and American studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. He's an activist. He's an organizer. We've been talking mostly about an essay he wrote called Never Throw Away the Key on the Compassionate Radicalism of Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy appeared in the journal Socialism and Democracy. Uh, Joe, thanks so much for your work and for joining us today. Thanks, CS. It's been a pleasure. And this is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. <laughs>